Can everybody please take their seats so that we can get started? Okay, welcome everybody. Um, there's a quick announcement before we begin. If you've ordered a printed papers book and not yet collected it, please can you get it from the registration desk before the tea break? Okay, this session we are going to be having two presentations covering different aspects of short-term insurance risk. The presentations will be 20 minutes each, and then we'll have time for questions at the end of both presentations. Our first speakers are Carla Fasana and Matthew Eagle from Guy Carpenter, a reinsurance broking firm. Matthew has 20 years experience in the reinsurance business and is head of GC analytics for the international region. Carla is responsible for analytics in South Africa. They will discuss ways in which South African short-term insurers can determine their risk of hail losses and compare these methods to those underpinning the SAM standard formula. They'll also share some insights into the research that they have done regarding earthquake risk in South Africa. Welcome, Carla. And <laughs> Thanks, Nick. I suddenly realized I need to turn my phone off. Um, firstly, just apologies as an imposter, and you can see my handwritten name. Those who were hoping to meet Amit Palmer while he was um, out, uh, be disappointed. You get me instead. Um, Amit's fine. He just logistically, we decided he needed to be in London for some other important stuff going on at the moment. So, so I'm here, and Carl and I are going to uh, take you through this presentation. And the other thing about the presentation is the titles often have to get sent in months in advance. And... Um, uh, we've got hail and quake in South Africa, what should you be worried about? So, first of all, don't panic. You're not going to be scared out of your wits. We're not doing any simulations of events. Um, but actually, we've gone a little bit off, off tack, but hopefully we'll give you some insights and some food for thought on how to look at, um, at some of these perils and how to uh, understand some of the model outputs one might be uh, looking at. Um, the other thing is we had planned to, to have an interactive session with, uh, I think some of you in sessions yesterday know there was going to be live questions, the ability for you to uh, answer those questions on your pads. Um, I gather due to some, um, for some technical aspects that's been uh, scrapped, but we have left the questions in our uh, presentation. Um, so we are, are going to ask for some participation just by way of show of hands. Um, from yourselves, and it might be quite tricky on uh, seeing all the questions on the um, slides, but that's where we're going to kick off. Um, and I'm going to get, get away from this podium. Um, this is quite a, a technical and sort of detailed start, but one of the things we commonly look at when we talk about catastrophe output, people talk about return periods. And what we've got on the right-hand side there is what we call an OEP curve and the current exceedance probability curve which give us uh, a loss estimate for various different return periods. And if you focus on a couple of points, this is, if you look at the numbers, a sort of low frequency, high severity kind of peril. So something like earthquake, uh, where we don't get a lot of activity, but there's a potential for a big loss somewhere out there. Um, but look at the, the, the terminology people often use to say, the one in 100 year loss is 10 billion rand, or the one in 200 year loss is 50 billion rand. So I've put on four definitions on the left-hand side there, and I was going to ask you which of those do you think is an accurate uh, statement um, with regard to this OEP curve. So the first one is 
we expect a loss of 50 billion rand every 200 years. Who thinks that's an accurate statement? Just put your hand up in the air. Okay, got actuaries in the room. <laughs> uh, the second one says the probability of a loss exceeding 50 billion rand in any one year is 0.5%. Who thinks that's an accurate statement? Okay, we're getting, we're getting a fair group, sort of maybe about half of you. I can't see all the way down the far end. Third one is, well, we've observed two losses of uh, 10 billion or above 10 billion rand uh, in the last 100 years, so this curve must be wrong. Who thinks that's accurate? Okay. And the last one, on average, we would expect a loss to exceed 50 billion rand once every 200 years, on average. Who thinks that's correct? All right, excellent audience, spot on. Actually, number two and number four, in my mind, are both, are both uh, correct statements. The important point is, really, these curves are talking about exceedance probabilities. So we talk about not the probability of a loss of 50 billion itself, but a loss of 50 billion or more, and it's on average. So in a 100-year period, we could have had no losses of 10 billion or more, we might have had two or more losses. But yeah, if you get two in 100 years and you're one in 100, you might start to think, is my model or is my curve still make sense? But it's not impossible. Um, that was the point. Um, the second one is a little bit more tricky, and I'm going to just focus on, a, on, a, on one point in this curve. So here we've got this idea of what do you do when you combine the OEP curves from different perils or from different regions. So we've got uh, two OEP curves here where we've got uh, earthquake loss from Kaoteng region and earthquake loss from Cape Town region. And both of them have a 1 in 250 year loss of 30 billion. But you can see the 1 in 250 combined on the right hand side is 35 billion. So my question is, does that mean there's some kind of correlation between Kaoteng earthquake and Cape Town earthquake, some kind of clash? Who thinks, yes, there is? And who thinks, no, that doesn't tell me that? Okay, again, spot on. Um, you know, people get this, and I've, I've seen this with, with a lot of uh, people in reinsurance-based senior management. You get that when you just combine independent perils, there is a probability. We're talking about the probability of either a Gauteng earthquake or a Cape Town earthquake exceeding a certain amount in one year. And obviously, both of them, oops, so I was going to use the pointer. Most of you on that side of the room, both of them, 35 million, have a probability of 0.2%, one in 500 year of exceeding. If you add 0.2% and 0.2%, you get 0.4, which is a one in 250. And for those being really technical, yes, there is a small probability that could happen in the same year, and you would submit that that's, that's going to be tiny. So the, the point of that introduction really is a lot of people, and clearly none of you have any issues with it, a lot of people do sometimes struggle with just understanding the concept of they get all these model output, they get these OP curves, and want to make sure they understand what's going on. And so one of the gist of our presentation is to look at how do you understand the tail of the curve and how do we use scenarios to help inform us uh, on that tail. And there's too much on the slide for you to take in, but one of the interesting things that your starting point is to take your model and start to drill down into what parts of the country, what parts of, uh, what sort of size magnitude earthquakes 
are driving the loss. And this slide is from Equicat model, um, which we most of you in this space will know, you know, overstates the frequency of losses, earthquake in South Africa. But what you see here across the top is the magnitude down the left-hand side is Cresta zones, and highlighted in, in reds and orange are the magnitude earthquakes from their model, I should say not from anyone's model, from their model, and the zones that are driving the average annual loss uh, for earthquake. Maybe simpler to look at, if you look at what's driving the tails, so now we just look at events that at the 1 in 200 year or above, uh, we start to see uh, sort of reasonably small magnitude events, but in the Gauteng region, just because of the accumulation of exposures, can drive a big loss. Or maybe bigger events, which can happen around about the Cape Town area, um, still a lot of exposure, but potential for higher magnitude events. But it's a useful way to start understanding what's going on and what's driving, uh, driving my uh, tail of my risk. So, another question, and this one, you know, not expected now to, to understand statistics and probability. This is just your gut feel. And maybe for some of you, maybe a pretty informed gut feel. How many earthquakes do you think have occurred in, let's say, about the last 200 years, which would cause an insured loss and right, there's some uncertainty in how people estimate that, but I'm giving a, a, a guide of one billion rand or more in South Africa. So current values. How many earthquakes have we got that give us an insured loss for the market of a billion rand or more? So who thinks, I'm going to start the order, I'm going to go at the bottom. Who thinks there aren't any? So none. Uh, okay, very, very good. Who thinks maybe one? So they hedge their bets somewhere in the middle. <laughs> who thinks two? And who reckons three or more? Okay, I would say we almost had the distribution. It's sort of three or more was probably a bit lower, but none, one or two. I thought you were all roughly, uh, roughly in a similar, similar numbers. Well, I'm not going to answer that yet. Um, we'll go through. Uh, we'll go through. So. The, the first one that most people will have heard about, or a number of you would have heard about, is and probably the most destructive earthquake in recent times uh, was the earthquake in 1969, September, um, in this Tilbach uh, series area outside, or sort of down the Western Cape. Um, different interpretations of what the magnitude of that event was, but 6.3 is, is one of the estimates. Um, we've done a bit of, there's a lot of text on the slide. Um, trying to look at, well, what would that event be in today's values? Um, there's a paper by Lander, 1970, talked about an economic loss of $24 million. Interestingly enough, we converted that to rands at the time of the event, and you got only 18 million rand. <laughs> a dollar bought you 70 cents. Well, now, in today's money, that would be 343 million rand. So that's a bit of a difference in rates of exchange. Um, we look to take that RAND amount and index it to today's value. So house price index has been just over 10% uh, per annum. And obviously, I'm just using that as a proxy for rebuilding index. Um, retail price index has been a similar, similar kind of range. And if we index the loss at 1969 to current, money, current values, we get something just over a billion RAND. Point is, that's just indexing the values of the property. We've also had, obviously, increased population, increased number of buildings, both residential and commercial. 
population's gone up about two and a half times, 2.4 times since then. So let's assume at least double the number of buildings. One billion would become two billion. So of the order of two billion rand or more, and actually I say or more, if you look at CoreLogic, who, the company that bought Equicat, um, they had an estimate of economic loss of actually 75 million rand, so quite a lot higher than the Lander paper. And obviously, if you index for whatever that is, 46 years from a higher value, you get a much higher estimate. They estimate a current built environment, or let's say insured loss, of 5.5 billion for that event. So back to my previous question, well over a billion. There's quite a lot of uncertainty around, around that number. Um, not expecting you to be able to read the text, but you, you know, those get copies. Many of you would have heard about the modified Macaulay intensity scale. It's a, there are other measures of earthquake intensity, like peak ground acceleration, which measures the shaking of the ground at the, at the site. But the MMI scale is one of these observational scales that people can just say, well, I felt this kind of act, this experience in this area. And so you can, from that observational data, you can build up a, 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 an idea of the footprint of the event. <clears throat> and generally, it's really only intensity six and above that you start to get um, damage even to sort of poorly, poorly uh, constructed buildings. But that's just a reference for you um, for these next couple of slides. One of the things we do is we can take footprints of historic events um, and overlay exposure over those events and estimate what kind of accumulation we might get. And here's a footprint um, from the uh, USGS, uh, United States Geological Service, and remember, damage is only really happening at sort of five and above, really even the orange, but let's take the yellows. You can see quite a small footprint of where the intensity was big enough to cause damage. Uh, overall, we estimate about 414 billion rand of exposure across property, motor, and engineering within uh, intensity five and above. And if we apply some damage factors from that, we estimate a loss of about 3.6 billion rand using that footprint. But if we use this footprint, which comes from the South African Council for Geosciences, very different footprint. Now, you aren't asked why they're so different. People use what are called uh, attenuation relationships, uh, ground motion predictor equations, to basically estimate from the magnitude of the earthquake, what magnitude, what depth, how the energy uh, dissipates out from the center and estimate what kind of intensity. And people use different equations plus maybe some of the observational data. Remember, the USGS do this around the world. I wouldn't say quick and dirty. They're a very reputable organization, but they get these footprints out quite quickly after the event. So this footprint's uh, obviously built from people on the ground who are, who are close to the action, as it were. But you can see a much bigger accumulation of exposure, 2.5 billion, and therefore a much bigger loss estimate of almost 12 billion. Um, I don't want you to get caught up in the numbers. We're just trying to give you an idea of how you can start to use scenario modeling to start understanding what's going on in, in, the, in the tail of the, of the curve. But you can see some, some pretty big differences there. So we've got some scenarios around that event, but what else has happened? So since then, um, we've got a table down the bottom left. And you see in this table, you know, recent events in 2013, 14, but all pretty small apart from the one uh, near Clarksdorp 2014, which we think could generate, or will generate a loss of about 300 million rand for the market. Um, but not much, 1976 in Velcom, 
5.5 magnitude, probably again we think maybe something around a 200 million market loss. Big event in Mozambique, magnitude 7, but too far away to really cause much damage in South Africa. Um, and another event I mentioned in the 5.4 in Orkney, Clarksdorp region. So probably nothing on the scale of 1969 um, in terms of 1 billion losses or more. Remember I asked you how many. So, but there's been some activity and it gives us some information about the lower part of the curve. What about before 1969? And it gets harder because there's less data around, there's less information and you have to take that into account. But there are a couple of events and one in particular we know 1809 also magnitude 6.3, and remember also that's a, that's a bit of an estimate, but happened near Milneton, actually destroyed a farm, Milneton Farm. It's on what's known as the Milneton Fault, which, which runs through the region. Actually runs about eight kilometers from the Kuburg um, nuclear power station, I'm told, so not too far. Um, if that earthquake happened, I mean, that's a similar size to the Tilbuck 1969, closer to Cape Town, probably a bit more accumulation. So we think that, that event's probably uh, of that size magnitude. So again, more than one billion. Um, not much else though. This, this one in 1932 near St. Lucia, um, which we, we estimate could be a few hundred million, but we don't think anywhere beyond 500. Um, so it starts to give us some information. Uh, maybe I need to go back here so I can see that last bullet point. What's going on in the tail? So, Okay, 1809, I know it's just a bit more than 200 years, but I didn't want to be obvious and say how many events have happened in the last 200 and whatever that is, seven years. <laughs> but we reckon probably two events uh, in the, for the market that would generate losses of over a billion in that long-term period. Um, you know, it's not, there, there may be others that we're not that aware about, but that's pretty much the ones reported. But it does give us some information lower down um, Maybe over that 200-year period, about five above 200 million, but we know in the more recent time, three above that period. So 200 million, three events in 50 years, one in 17 on average, but there hasn't been much before 1969, so maybe one in 20, one in 25. I'm not going to say that gives you a model, but when you look at the validation of some of these model curves and things, you want to be able to think in this way, just to look at history and interpret it in a in a sort of intuitive, logical way. And finally, you know, we do then go into more depth and, and, and there's again quite a bit of detail for those in front of the slides can probably see. On the top axis here we've got magnitude and on the bottom, uh, on the y-axis we've got the uh, exceedance uh, probability. So it's on a log scale. Um, so this is 1 to 10 to the minus 2 which is basically 1 in 100. The black lines are basically some research from Professor Kiko and colleagues, University of Pretoria. So it's sort of up-to-date view on interpreting historic catalogs. This is just showing for the whole country. We drill down and do this by region because it does differ significantly by region. Um, and the black line is effectively, there's two different black lines. Depends how you treat uh, mining events because there have been a lot of mining events generating frequency but they don't tend to have the potential to generate very large magnitude events and also there's uncertainty in what do you interpret as the maximum possible event uh, in different regions. Um, but that's sort of latest research. The blue dots are from our Guy Carpenter GCAT earthquake model. The uh, uh, red dots are from the RQE uh, Equicat model. 
And what we look to do is to validate and check those models against the most up-to-date research. And if we calibrate those rates, we can look at the impact of making those changes to the models uh, using the frequencies of yellow. So here we're saying once every 10 years, somewhere in South Africa, magnitude 5.5 or bigger. Um, so that's one component. Obviously, there are many other components. I talked about the attenuation relationship, and obviously there's the damage curve estimates as well. But that's just a, some insight into how one might look at uh, the tail of the curve uh, with regard to earthquake. Carla's going to give you another question to keep you, uh, keep you focused and start to look beyond earthquake. Okay, for the next question, we just wanted to gauge um, which perils you, you, you feel most threatened by in, in recent times. So if we look at the first one, it's drought. <laughs> yeah, we were expecting that one to be a bit higher over the last recent lack of rain. But then in the last few days, we, we lead to hail, which is number four, but we'll go with that one. <laughs> Who's, who feels threatened by hail? Um, earthquake? No one. And uh, other weather perils, flood, wind, rain? We're expecting actually to see some, some people threatened by earthquakes since that's what a lot of uh, insurance companies base their reinsurance purchase on. They'll look at the, as Matthew's just gone through, the 1 in 200 or 1 in 250 year earthquake loss and uh, buy their reinsurance up to that limit. What we actually wanted to speak about today is the effects of, of hail. Since we've seen in the most recent, most recent years an upward trend of the number of hail events in South Africa. So if you look back to, to 30 years, you, you may say, okay, there, there's a bit of reporting bias, so you can't maybe trust those numbers. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's, there's a definite upward trend in the number of hail events in South Africa. So the blue line shows all hail events, um, and that would be countrywide, while the, the red line shows hail events greater than uh, intensity H4, which would be about the size of a, um, a squash ball. So the point to make here is that, yes, earthquake may, may drive your um, purchase in terms of the size of the event, but the frequency of the hail events may, um, may drive your, your sideways reinsurance cover, how many reinstatements you need to buy, since uh, it, it will threaten your, your netbook. Is there any other points you wanted to make there? Yeah, that's fine. This graph here shows that while... Um, a lot of catastrophe models estimate that your loss is a percentage of your insured value. This graph shows clearly that there's no clear correlation between the insured value and the size of your loss. So you'll see for, for example, um, there's an 800,000 rand, some insured value, that can lead to a 180,000 rand loss, which is quite a high percentage. So uh, you shouldn't just look at a percentage of your insured value um, when you're looking at your estimate, estimated loss. These graphs here are just an example of a, um, a recent publication that we've, we've brought out um, showing the pre- and post-loss analysis of the explosion in the port in Tianjin in China. So it's just basically showing you that satellite imagery can help you estimate the, the loss pre- and po well, the loss post-event. So if you look at the pre-event image, you can see your exposure 
in that port and the post-loss imagery, all of these show post-loss imagery to show the estimated damage after the loss. So these would obviously show market loss, then you can, as, as a proxy, take your, your market share and apply that to the estimated market loss to get what you expect your loss to be. So in terms of, of hail events, we can take that. This is a satellite imagery of the Centurion station in, in well, <laughs> Centurion car train station. So if we look at an event, a hail event that uh, hits the Centurion car train station, you can look at this image to estimate the number of cars. Um, and so if we estimate the number of um, 4,500 cars at the station with an estimated some insured dependent 70,000 each, an estimated average claim of 30,000, that would lead to a total claim of 135 million just at, at the uh, Centurion car train station. And obviously the, the hailstorm would affect a much larger area and this is just looking at the car train station. So it's just an example to show you that you can use satellite imagery to, to do an analysis of the loss. Another um, scenario we can look at is a traffic jam on the N1 between Pretoria and Joburg during peak hour traffic. So if you look at this map over here, the, the red line shows the, the N1 highway. If we estimate an average of, um, how many cars did we say, sorry? 21,000 vehicles estimated, we can look at about a 640 million rand claim if, if the hail was to hit during peak hour traffic on the N1 highway. Then just looking at the, the SAM standard formula, the FSB uses a, a market factor of 0.446%, which would give you a one in 200 uh, year hail event of 4.1 billion rand. Guy Coppins, <laughs> Guy Coppins have recently created a, a hail model which would estimate that your 4.1 billion would be about a 1 in a 1 in 15 year return period loss. Matthew will take you to the last question, Randolph. Thanks, Carla. I think just in terms of time, and, and uh, we've got another presentation from Hannes to come, we're not, I won't take you through the question and we'll maybe come back to this if we have time at the end. The point of this slide was really there are other perils out there that aren't natural hazard perils, and there's six potentials uh, listed on there. I, I think the takeaway is that one, it's very hard to model some of these perils from a frequency probability point of view, but the use of scenarios is very common to look at how can you get a handle on the potential loss from something like uh, terrorism, from uh, dam burst, um, and various perils. So if we get time uh, during questions, we can come back to that. But uh, otherwise, thank you for your for time and attention. So uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about risk visualization, touching on quite a few of the topics that uh, Carla and uh, Matthew, <laughs> Mr. Eagle, um, has touched on. Um, and just by way of introduction, when you think of, uh, of visualization, obviously there's like the cliche of, uh, you know, pictures, uh, pictures worth a thousand words. And uh, I'll be taking kind of maybe through the pictures or through the imagery that I'll show you, it'll be a bit more like a short story because I'll just be focusing on visual, visual techniques. But um, I think the, what we're trying to do through visual visual tools is obviously improve our understanding, but also improve the understanding of the, those we communicate our results to. So it's 
hopefully we get a thousand insights out of the visual tools that's there. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I think the, when, you, when, when we look at the way that risks are being assessed currently in the insurance market, uh, kind of referring to the commercial market, you might, you might have an underwriter be presented with a, an account of a hundred, you know, maybe a hundred or a thousand properties. And it's, it's, it's almost the way that the market rates it. You'd almost assume they, they don't have access to more information. Where you look at, you look at one or two key, key locations, you'll look at the occupancy or what actually happens in there. Is it the manufacturing type risk? And extrapolate that to the rest of the book. So it's, it's, it's as if you're saying, you know, one property is the same as the other. Um, you know, it's like you look at every tree is the same, every road's the same. And but what, you, what you actually see if you start looking at different dimensions or, or zooming in and out through use of certain visual tools, you're, you'll, you'll, you start getting appreciation of the risk environment. Um, so road, if you, if you, any old road, the, this specific road is probably one of the most uh, probably famous roads, which is the one that goes up the Alp to Wes. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a kind of a, a road where many epic cycling battles have been fought. Um, but it's also a very dangerous road. So you, you kind of see gruesome pictures of coaches with travelers going up there. And also cyclists coming down and with, because it's open road at silly speeds, you know, having an impact. Um, and actually what I was reading through the kind of the duels that go up the Alp to Wes, I was kind of uh, reminded of you know, how a bit of insurance markets, keeping your eyes on the competition, not necessarily suspecting anyone of drug use, but, um, but actually understanding that we're at that tipping point where traditional methods kind of, you know, might go up, is kind of starting to go out of fashion, where risk visualization tools, the way underwriters assess things, start using the, the G, GIS technology that's actually there for them. Um, Talking about going out of fashion, I think in South Africa, the trend about, you know, everyone kind of getting off the, off the road bike and onto the mountain bikes. But not what I really want to talk about. What I actually want to talk about is the trees there in the background. Now, the, the first kind of um, story is about this, na this nature reserve in Cape Town, which is, uh, the, this picture was taken in 2006, just um, going back with Google Maps. And this was a, it's a 9,000 hectare Reserve with about 5,000 hectare of pine, commercial pine plantations. Not sure who the insurer was um, or on this 10 years ago. Um, hopefully not one of you. Um, because what's happened 10 years on is this. So there's been a, a couple of fires. Um, the first one pretty much wiped out the, the kind of the bottom right and uh, section of the reserve. The second one, which was this year, pretty much wiped out the, the other... Th maybe well, combined about 60% of the reserve being, being wiped out. Um, if you actually just go across the hill, across the mountain to the other side, there's another quite successful plantation that's also, that's also had fires, but all of those fires that they've been able to stop and actually not, it hasn't actually done much damage. So uh, somehow they've managed to contain it. Um, and been, half of it's been harvested, so not, not burned down. Um, so in what, what is that? If we zoom out a bit and we actually look at what it is, it, just through the use of kind of free, free software online, you can see that the, the first fire started on the bottom right-hand corner, 
actually uh, across the mountain from Lawrenceford. And it spread, and it, where that arrow is pretty much skipped over the mountain. Um, the second fire started at the bottom of the hill, kind of burnt up in the reserve, and was completely under control on 10, 10 o'clock that night when the southeaster started gusting at you know, 50 miles an hour. And within a couple of hours, actually, all the plantations that pretty much burned down took fire, and it threatened, it pretty much the fire came down all the way, and uh, maybe a kilometer from where I stay, went around the mountain, and actually was pretty close to, to doing damage to the, um, to the residential areas. Pretty much most of the farms in the valley was evacuated. So uh, what's interesting on the, other, on the other, just the other side of the mountain is the wind and the topography. The, the fire that came across the mountain, they've been able to stop because fire don't burn that successfully downhill. And the one that came around the mountain wasn't actually been helped by the prevailing conditions. So kind of saying all that, I think it's just quite interesting to note how just through GIS technology, we can understand our risk a lot better. And maybe you would, if you were from an underwriting perspective and you knew that there's a prevailing winds and all this risk, you might, you might not charge the same rate in the Yonkazook Valley that you will on the, on the Eden side. Just something to think about. The other, the other pictures, actually, we talk about the change in exposure. So um, the... the the presentation, the previous presentation was talking about the changes in exposure that actually affect the insurance, the insurance value or the claim of those insurance values from the same events. So this is kind of a, a well-known RDP development just outside of Santon. Um, from kind of this level of, of zoom or, or detail, pretty much looks very, it doesn't look like much has changed. Um, we kind of zoom in a bit more. You can see that on the left, left hand uh, bottom, that's kind of 10 years ago, and the way the infrastructure is designed was, is pretty much for a family of five with one toilet, um, a little bit of land around their house where they can have agricultural, you know, maybe put some plants, some, um, uh, you know, maybe grow some crops. The one on the right is pretty much what it looks like at the moment, where there's about four to five families staying on a per stand. And, and I think it's just whether that could be foreseen in terms of the way that it was designed, the infrastructure was designed with the open spaces. Maybe it could have been, if you just zoom out a bit and see where it's located, obviously, in terms of economic epicenter of Johannesburg and, and people, actually, the ease of getting there, the ease of transport close to airports. So if you look at the current development of so similar developments, maybe close to the area, the houses have been designed different, the infrastructure has been designed different. So, yeah, so it's just maybe through kind of understanding the locations and um, understanding the, 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 you know, the visual element or where you are, the location of, of where things are kind of can give us insight into the design um, of infrastructure and the risks that's associated with that in terms of pollution, health, um, crime. This is another just before I get on to kind of the perils or the, the things that actually impact insurers, this is kind of the mid-rand, so similar kind of development over the last 10 years. The picture on the right shows the change, so it's just a study on urbanization and the change of surface water runoff from a kind of an kind of a, a unbuilt up area to a fully developed area. And, and, um, and what, we kind of, what we currently kind of look at in terms of our flood zones and what, what our return periods of a flood event would be in certain areas. 
would look a lot different now than it did when a lot of these um, f um, return periods was assessed. So something to, to consider. So just getting back to the property underwriting and the way that, that um, and maybe there's certain commercial corporate underwriters that do things a bit more clever, but, but just from experience, you, you see you know, underwriters extrapolating, looking at the total insured value for, for reinsurance purchases. You've got to put an MFL or EML on that, and you apply a rate, you get a price. And when you ask underwriters, they'll kind of say, you know, we do this by gut feel, we've got experience in the market. Um, well, if you think what risk you're actually assessing and the coverage is provided, fire, hail, earthquake, storm, theft, landslide, subsidence, I mean, it's quite a lot to stomach um, and just by gut feel. And then when you start thinking in terms of capital modeling, you, you want to assess the aggregate exposures across multiple accounts in the same area. Um, so in terms of pricing, I think where, where companies are going is obviously cleaning that data trying to, to geocode the data, asking the brokers for data, that's a good start, where previously you'd, you'd get maybe the total insured values plus the, plus the top five locations. And once you've got that, then you actually have the tools to plot this out, to understand where the locations are, to understand your accumulations of locations. Um, the, the so, the, there's, there's quite a few software providers, this specific program, uh, this program there's a company called Grip down there where we would say that just let us kind of log in and, and look, look at these things and I've taken some screenshots out of the software. But, you know, actually seeing where the concentrations of those exposures are, understanding the return periods, understanding whether that's within your capital modeling risk limits, um, and overlaying different risk metrics. So in this case, you know, just overlaying crime statistics of different areas on top of your exposures. Can give you an can actually give you an output or an estimate of, of possible you know or, or give, at least give you a relative weighting for your pricing, in terms of what you rate your theft rates at. Other other overlays and structures um, or other kind of um, layers that that um, can be applied is this. This is a, a map of the Dolomites, kind of in and around Joburg and where your um, locations are relative to those uh, dolomites, um, which obviously impact your subsidence rates. We're currently, if you look at the rating manuals, you'd see underwriters charging kind of a, do you want subsidence cover? Yes. And unless, unless there's a kind of a clear, uh, you know, maybe your neighbor had some lines, a landslip or, um, uh, you know, or, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that assessment has been done on the same rate. So it is quite interesting um, when you see where the, where the risks are relative to those, to those um, risky areas. This is a, just a, a, a snapshot of the, the um, 2012 hail path and the overlaying your exposures on that, um, similar to the, to the earthquake risks, just by the visual tools that actually on offer to, to understand where your, where your risk is and your exposure. Um, relative to those events and scenarios, as um, Carla and I have been talking about. So all that said, there's many different layers. As I said, you, there's many different coverages. Um, you wouldn't necessarily want an underwriter for every risk to go on and plot the 500 properties, or um, you, know, you might not have the time for that. But actually, bringing all that data together, um, 
you, it, it's possible to derive profiles of risk, including various perils, to actually have relativities apply to your base rates for different perils in different regions. Um, there's many kind of algorithms for doing that. Uh, there's many clustering techniques that's, you know, that's kind of available and, and that's described in detail online or uh, in, in, in handbooks. But I think what, this is kind of a picture of what you're trying to achieve in, 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 um, in using the tools and the, and the, and the, um, the, the called layers that's available. So just on the, just talked a bit about the pricing. I'm going to leave you five minutes for, for questions, unfortunately. Um, but the same thing with our, with our capital modeling. We're generating thousands and, you know, we're generating, well, hundreds of thousands of simulated records that based on, on a, lot of, a lot of analysis, anal analyzing the, the, the correlation between different perils, between different classes, between, um, you know, data sets going back how many years, bringing catastrophe models, having all this kind of clever data um, that we generate, and what we give our business almost the top left-hand box is, you know, this is the capital we need, and this is our mean, mean from our model. Um, kind of plotted the actual utility function there at the bottom, which is kind of like the value at risk. You don't really care what happens below, you don't really care what happens above, but this is the, this is the number. Um, so we've been kind of developing some, some, well, kind of, this is maybe the next step on first. Of what, what companies would start or what teams would start looking at. So maybe you start looking at the attritional losses for, for different classes and you, um, on the same, in the same page, you start looking at the, at the catastrophe losses impacting different, different, uh, different accounts. And then maybe start seeing the, the diversified effect of writing these things together and how capital will be allocated between different classes of business. You might give a graph like this to your management, which shows the distribution of profit at a certain percentile, um, which I think starts giving a lot more information. But other things through the use of visualization. Um, so the top left is, a, is the plot of, say, simulations, the 5% simulations above and below your 99.5th your percentile. And actually, showing in a visual way the contribution of certain perils or risks to, to the simulations that drive the capital at that level. But from a business management perspective, you might not be that interested at the one in 200. You might be interested in what happens at the one in four or the one in 10. And then a similar graph can be, or similar kind of uh, visual uh, uh, tool can be, or visual picture can be, can be shown for the different simulations that actually impact different return periods and what, what are the kind of the drivers or the key perils at different um, return periods facing the business. The, the picture on the right is, instead of just looking at capital allocation at a 99.5th percentile, you can look at specific, so similar, similar, similar to the picture on the top left, but actually showing where does certain perils actually start driving capital? Where does it actually, um, you know, what is actually driving our risk at different percentiles. And next, the next thing in management, one, okay, but what if? You know, so, so we saw from the previous picture, it's the, the catastrophe risk for this class of business that's driving it. So what if we then, um, what if we then put in a, a reinsurance, uh, uh, you know, um, what if we reduce our reinsurance retention? What happens then? And 
instead of going, then actually going back and rerunning the whole model with that reinsurance retention, actually uh, building a little overlay model or proxy model that just looks at the weighted simulations of um, with, within um, the, lim the limits that you're trying to test. So actually just looking at maybe at the 10% of simulations where the risks were, where the simulations were, were limited to those values. You could actually sit and within a meeting actually have an engaging conversation and seeing how your kind of distribution graph changes, how your capital changes. Let's just leave you with this. So, actually, um, I'm not sure, but I, I heard that in Chinese, the same word for risk and it's the same word for risk and opportunity. This is just a picture coming back to the GIS of the the um, in Selby, the drive-in that they've kind of started. Um, re, you know, uh, trying to, to, to extract more, more um, it's, a, it's a mine dump pretty much that they've cleaned up. The, the improvement in techniques of, um, of mining, they're actually able to extract more gold and cleaning it up to such an extent that they do industrial development on those sites. Um, so maybe, and, and apparently, Part of the of the of the um, what they're trying to do is actually do this for most of the mine dumps around Johannesburg. Maybe a question is just what will that do? You know, how's our exposure going to change? Is it an opportunity? It's just great to kind of have these visual aids to to start understanding our environment. Great. I think that's uh, all I've got to say. So you can uh, ask some questions. I think. Then maybe I can ask uh, Carla and Matthew just one question. You were speaking about your your earthquake um, risk and the number of events over the last few years, and saying how it's easier to detect or there's a lot more detection happening around earthquakes these days, and that it's probably the upward trend may be a little bit biased based on that. Would you not say that, or how do you see the hail risk being similar effect, similarly affected by that? Maybe beforehand these hail events we were seeing happening, but in maybe outlying areas with no development or without social media and people sharing, sharing the pictures or, or insurance companies capturing that there were hail claims. So do you see some sort of a, a bias in the hail as well? Um, yeah, I think it's a very good point. One, one definitely has to take uh, observational data into account. When we looked at the hail uh, clearly, in those you know, 30 years back, there may be underreporting of number of events. Um, we're not ascribing the, the uptick in that trend to any specific uh, impact, whether that's climate change or, or other scenarios that may be impacting. But we, do, we have at least seen some, some uptick in the frequency over a period where we think the observational data is pretty robust. But yeah, you're right, there should definitely be some adjustment or one needs to take that kind of thing into account and clearly on, on things like earthquake when people and on other perils like windstorm when people look at weather data or earthquake catalogs there's a certain period going backwards where you're fairly comfortable that you're capturing all earthquakes above a certain magnitude or all wind speeds above a certain observational threshold but you know going further back uh, that's that's much less reliable and our analysis on that 1809, you know, there's a known event that we think could have generated, you know, a big potential big loss in today's uh, exposure, um, and we think 
if there were other big ones out there, there would be also anecdotal evidence to know that. But clearly we don't know about the frequency of smaller magnitude events going far, that far back. So when people build models, they definitely need to take that into account and adjust to try and make sure the, the frequency assumptions they're making within the models take that into account. Any additional questions? Just uh, thank you very much uh, for the presentations. Don't worry, Hannes, not one of you. Um, I found it really interesting. Um, when we start off, just Matthew and, and Carla, for you, I don't know we didn't get to the last slide, but I mean, just looking at international events over the past week, uh, you know, the one thing that's not spoken often about is terrorism events. And uh, maybe we, it's something we, we can have a bit of your thoughts on. You know, stuff that mold through our minds is, you know, obviously where we have masses of people in, in, um, in unison traveling together, the one that worries me, maybe because I use it often, is the heart train and a potential bombing on that, uh, potential losses. But the other one that I picked up on your slide is a dam burst. And um, I'm not too sure how our population looks relative downstream to some of our major dams, but could you share some of your thoughts on terrorism and dam burst and, and you know, whether that's something that should also keep us awake? Thank you. Um, dam burst actually was on there for a reason um, because a couple of weeks ago, well, it's probably, I don't know, maybe a month ago, uh, there was a dam burst in Brazil uh, which flooded a big mining operation uh, you know, below the dam. And we're looking at an insurance loss of about 600 million US dollars. So 90, 90 million rand. Now, that's actually, in the end, is really a, one individual large risk loss with a few small ones. And a huge part of that is, is business interruption. But I think it was just a reminder that regulators and rating agencies have put more pressure. And uh, you know, the, the, some of the unusual events we had around the world, the Thailand floods, the tsunami in Japan, a number of other scenarios, that people are trying to avoid surprises. And so you're right. We could do some analysis. And this is sort of a pointer from that to say, well, are there any significant accumulations uh, in areas that where, where dam burst could be a, an issue? Um, yeah, the frequency is tricky, but at least one should look at those scenarios. And I think back to that frequency point and the terrorism question, it's very, you know, in economic capital models, we're trying to, we're trying to basically look at probability of risk and one wants to put some kind of um, uh, curve, some kind of uh, event loss table, whatever goes into the models. But clearly that's difficult, and I think the scenario analysis helps underpin whether whatever curve one's putting into those models makes sense. And terrorism is definitely one where quite a lot of work has started to be done. And those tragic events in Paris last Friday, I mean, the, the, one of the attackers, it seems, was, was aiming to get inside the stadium and detonate the, detonate the device. Um, clearly, when people look at personal accident books and life books, that's one of the scenarios that, that people look at is, what size bomb is, is a reasonable assumption within a stadium, what size of, you know, how many lives might be impacted, and, and how train would be another, uh, another good scenario to look at. So that's one of the things there. It's a sort of average life impairment or life you know, cost um, and number of individuals. On terrorism, uh, truck bombs, car bombs, people look at a certain size bomb, and there's some engineering, there's some studies on how that energy would dissipate from the bomb and how many, what impact that would have on buildings nearby. One of the things we are doing, we've done for a lot of the terrorism pools uh, in, in Europe, is start to actually look at uh, data, because most of the terrorism scenarios that you can run at the moment just take energy in a circle out from the, the, the location of the blast and take a damage ratio as you move away from that. 
But actually what happens in physics and practice is the buildings themselves provide a shielding effect. So you know, the, the wave, the energy approaches the building and actually then the buildings behind that actually get some form of protection. So people are starting to look at uh, more sophisticated ways of getting proper PML assessments. And regulators uh, ask you all to look at, and this is the same insolvency too in Europe, ask you all to look at total accumulation within a 200 meter radius. Clearly that's one of the scenarios that, that you know, is, it doesn't have to be a terrorist attack, could be an explosion. The Tianjin uh, port was just a chemical uh, uh, warehouse storage that went up. Actually the firefighters made it worse because they went in not knowing what was in there and actually made the, made the whole impact or uh, the explosion far worse than it was going to be. But explosion 200 meters and actually we learned quite a lot from that event of how damage uh, ratio, what kind of damage you see as you move away from the blast. So you, you're absolutely right, there is quite a lot of stuff going on in terrorism, but some of those others are interesting uh, to tackle in a similar way, like the dam burst scenario. Maybe just uh, one more question again on the, the, the reinsurance side or the, the damage assessment. There was a lot of... Um, talk a few years ago about uh, acid mine water in, in Johannesburg and the impact that might have on severities for, for earthquake. But it's, it's died down. Is, is that something that's still topical? I missed the first the talk of. Uh, acid mine water, the, the water that's filling in the, the, the mine cavities under, under Johannesburg. Not something I'm particularly familiar with. No, it is still topical. There's still an ongoing um, research on that. Uh, there was the the research, um, there was an acid mine water working group looking at pollution and all the like, other impacts of the, the mine water. I think the most recent view is that with the kind of ran water actually extracting the water from the, from the mines, the, the, the only remaining risk really is the seismic risk. So this year, as I understand, there is a SAIA workshop that's actually um, got some experts in to look at the, at the risk of the earthquake risk for acid mine water. I'm not sure what the status is, but the, yes, it, it is still topical. I think it is the risk. I don't think the risk has gone away because it's gone quiet. Just a point on the mining piece itself, not the acid, uh, acid but the, the mining piece. When you look at historic catalogs, you can actually see higher frequency of earthquakes during the day. So it's quite clear the impact of, of mining activities and location on earthquake rates. But as I say, they tend to be, in terms of magnitude, impact slightly smaller than, than some of the other fault-driven quakes. Hi, sorry, I've got a question here. Um, your hail curve showed an upward trend. Um, am I right that the number of hail events is increasing over the last 25 years in South Africa? So my question is, um, 20 years ago, is those events um, few because there were few hail events or we just had less stations monitoring hail events? Yeah, potentially both. Um, we don't know if there's, I mean, there's not enough, the number of years where it's really ticked up is probably not a long enough period. We could easily have a few years of, of higher frequency activity and then it could drop back down to a, to a longer run average. Um, and clearly, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the amount of observational stations and, and uh, focus on those kind of things could have been lower. So potentially both. We're not, we're certainly not, Using that, we're just making a point that observational and that frequency for hail is an issue, 
Um, when you look at capital and earnings volatility and people set retention levels, as Carla said, have they got enough sideways protection on the reinsurance itself, but also how many retained losses net of your reinsurance might you expect in any one year? So it's just a point to say frequency on hail is probably more of an issue than severity. Severity is an issue, but from a reinsurance perspective, people are buying enough cover for, for earthquake PML, and therefore we think cover the worst case hail scenarios. So frequency becomes an issue. But you're right, uh, reporting levels are, are important to take into account. And we may not see that trend continuing as we move forward. Okay, I think we're out of time. So thank you to all our speakers.